the environment, a big, complicated beast, almost as big and probably bigger and more complicated than the thing we call the economy. And yet we have armies of people each day who are speeding around, scratching away, building statistics, monitoring what's happening in the economy. How do we do the same thing for the environment? And my guest today is Professor Kate Orty, who is the, the ACT Sustainability Commissioner. Good morning, Kate. Hi, Rod. How are you? Uh, good. And uh, have I given a moderately crude, moderately accurate introduction to what environmental accounting is? Oh, well, you have, and it's complex, just like GDP, I suppose. But thanks very much for inviting me to come along and talk about this piece of work happening in the office at the moment, because it's pretty important and it involves a range of people who really think that GDP doesn't serve us well when we want to know what the environment contributes to our well-being. And I suppose we generally talk about value of the environment when we're thinking about natural capital because it is the mm. sixth capital on top of social, economic, etc. But it's about what the environment contributes to it, to our welfare. We can't live without fresh air, without clean water. We can't live without what water provides by way of providing water to our cities. So in thinking about state of the environment reporting in my office, we've been really considering how environmental accounting might assist us to understand some of this complexity and explain it to people in Treasury, for instance, and be saying to Treasury, this stuff is really valuable and we should be factoring it into our, our calculations about what it is we think makes for well-being, growth so it, and development. It is one of the big flaws in the capitalist system, the idea of the externality, where we send out some pollution, we use up a resource, but we don't pay for it and there's no accounting for it. Now, is this partly an, an attempt to account for that? Exactly, exactly. And look, it's thorough and it's rigorous and it's robust. So it's trying to make sure that when we think about the value of the environment, we're doing it with some level of complexity and rigour. It's really interesting because the people who started talking about this were accountants and there's a there's a bit of a, bit of a, a group around the place who are saying accountants can save the world. Now, I'm a lawyer and I wouldn't necessarily agree with that, but the accountant who's most interesting on this is Jane Gleeson-White, who's written a book called The Six Capitals, and I'd really urge anyone who's interested in this to go and have a look at it because she deals with the issues that are raised by George Monbiot and others who basically say don't try and value the environment because it has intrinsic value and you can't put a dollar figure on it. So there's a really big philosophical debate unpacking around this. Yes, you, you've preempted my question, which is, do we have to reduce everything to a dollar value? We don't have to, but I think if we want the people in Treasury to take some of what we're saying seriously, we probably need to try and speak their language, and that's what the accountancy profession is telling us. Okay, now what kind of reception does this idea have in those circles? Very interesting. It's not as if this is new either. We've been doing accounting for water in Australia since the 1990s. The Dutch have been using this to assist them to develop policy in relation to things like manure, for instance. They've got a lot of cows, not a lot of land, and they needed to think about what was happening with all their manure, so they sat and thought about that. We've been thinking about what, what environmental accounts might help us to understand about the value of parks in Australia in recent times, and there's a great report came 
came out of Victoria National Parks, which was done by the Victorian government, about the value of tourism. So we're thinking all of these things need to be combined in what's being called a system of environmental economic accounts, and that's an international standard. It's not something that we just dreamed up. It's happening across the world. One of the great One of the really good recent reports on this came out of Victoria to do with the Central Highlands and they'd been thinking for some time how they might value the Leadbeater possum from the point of view of what it really was worth to keep a threatened species from being driven to extinction. And when they thought about what those Central Highlands provided... It was pretty clear that the Leadbeater possum and intrinsic value associated with knowing nature is of value to us just because it is, was important. But they sat down and did the accounting, and ANU has been a really big part of this, Mm. ANU, the ABS, so the big university here, ANU, on all of this with the Fenner School, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, Bureau of Meteorology, a range of people involved. When they did the work for the Central Highlands, they were able to say that forestry in fact, delivered less money back into the economy than did water provisioning, so making sure that the catchment and the water was useful for humanity. It delivered less back into the economy than did carbon sequestration, and it delivered less back into the economy than tourism. So it was working out that balance and trying to do it thoroughly and rigorously. How about about the phrase, the invisible hand of the environment? Yeah, that's lovely. I like it. I think we should use that on one of our reports. But it's just so interesting that there's, there's, there is a resistance to this and a climate, a climate scientist, Dave Griggs, who some of your listeners will know from the IPCC and the Monash Sustainability Institute, said to me, Kate, I really know that we need ecosystem services. We need to work out what they're worth, but I really hate thinking about the environment in that way. And I think many of us do, but we also know that the discussion needs to move into some of these, some of these ways well, of thinking Well, a word that you've things. used a few times is value. Now, that in itself is a complicated question because, I've, and I understand what you're, you're telling me is that this is translating the value of, of the environment to people who don't necessarily see the environment for its own value. How, how then do you translate value into something like a an environment account? You do it by going through the data. You you literally sit down and think about the data. So, for instance, a carbon account would be about the way in which carbon is, carbon is assessed. There will be other accounts about the value of land, which will be in dollar forms, but it's not all in dollar forms. It depends on the way in which we're thinking about it. So it might be tonnes, it might be dollars, it might be a range of things that need to be assessed but can be assessed by thinking about how you put it in a table to assess literally its value. Well, how, yeah. how do I weight this? Because mm. uh, I might value, I might highly value bushwalking areas and just think it is the most wondrous thing to go and be part of nature. But then what if I'm a property developer or I'm somebody who wants to clear the land perhaps, how, how do I balance there. And that, and that's that's the real challenge, which is why we're leaning to the use of the system of environmental and economic accounts that's come out of the system of national accounting. So it's an international standard. It's literally putting things in columns and it's saying that this value is here. Some of it's about interpretation. There's no doubt that that will be a factor in it. But for instance, bushwalking, what you'd do about a bushwalker who has an interest in this is you'd look at it from the point of view of, well, who does it draw to the bush? How many people does it draw to the bush? Are they local people? 
people? Do they come from international areas? Is there an international trade in ecotourism that needs to be factored into this? So tourism is difficult, but it's there and it's capable of being assessed and analysed. I suppose I just want to say that Apart from the value of the bush, for instance, there's a really lovely bit of lovely bit of research that just come out about an app that they're using in Canada to work out what the what the costs of your your commute are, ah. and we've put it up on the, on, the, on the office Facebook page. So if anybody's listening to this, it might be worth going and having a look. So at. find the ACT Office of Sustainability. Yes, Facebook page, and you'll find it there. What's the full cost of your commute? So to go back to your waiting question. If you're engaged in active travel, of course, you are saving us ultimately, no doubt, on health costs. If you're using your bike, you're saving us on other costs. So the the value of active travel, for instance, as against the value of using your car. I mean what, the, the health benefits, The you health mean? benefits okay. and a range of other benefits, so reducing your carbon footprint as well. So those things are going into the assessment of something like the value of your commute. And I know when Maxine Cooper did the Auditor General's report on the light rail, for instance, she, the point was made that they were having some difficulty about working out what the wider economic benefits of light rail was. So we need to be thinking about how we Factor that into the equation because there are wider economic benefits about getting people onto transport corridors to reside into medium density housing, and this is a fraught issue in the ACT. I understand that, but medium density housing that's a mixed use that's on a transport corridor means that we'll be saving on what our commute costs are for the environment, economically, and health-wise, and well, they all have co-benefits. Speaking of Canberra issues hot in the news at the moment is a development out at uh, Malonglo and that is a, a complicated story and I don't want to put you on the spot with that one but how would environment accounting tackle something like that? It wouldn't matter what development development it is, so let's put Malongolo to one side and we're actually embarked on a report in Malongolo, so I'd prefer not to talk about that specifically. But we need to be appraising what the value is for the environment, what the value is for the, uh, I suppose, GDP, what the value is for people who can live there and be closer to work, what the value is that's going to be offset against the environment value as well in any development. So that sort of environmental accounting exercise is complex, but it can be done and it is being done. If I give you an example that's got nothing to do with Australia, which is a fascinating one, the Colombian Peace Agreement is a very interesting example of using environmental accounts to tell us a story that helps us to make better policy decisions. In Colombia, they'd struggled for years to resolve the peace and the conflict issues. They had a peace agreement, the leftists liked it, and I'm told that as a result the rightists didn't, and they sat down and thought about how they might resolve it. When they did the mapping that goes with these sorts of environmental accounting exercises, they could very clearly tell that the conflict areas were areas where there was unregulated gold mining, so it had a deep environmental impact. They could also tell that the conflict areas were places where oil pipelines were being exploded, so that had a deep environmental consequence. They could tell that there was unregulated forestry in some of those places where conflict was. And the overlay was very obvious. Now, it's when I say that, we're all sitting here thinking, of course it's obvious. But until you do that rigorous methods, uh, 
accounting exercise, you're really not in a position to say it would be extraordinarily profitable for us as a country, for instance, Colombia, to have a peace process that's successful because it's going to reduce all these costs associated with the environmental degradation that goes with conflict and often developments about conflict. Mm. Yeah, absolutely, and as you speak, I'm, I'm thinking also of uh, Bougainville and the big copper mine there and the social conflict that occurred. So we, we've talked so far about the upstream and then there's a very complicated machinery whirring and clunking away to, to, to process, grind through all these, these numbers in the environmental accounting. I want to ask you about now the downstream. How do people perceive this? Because the term, to my mind... Uh, accounting is very dry and and unengaging sort of a term. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, well, particularly people in perhaps Columbia or Bougainville or Canberra, uh, how do I perceive that as a member of the public? Well, I... I I'm confident that there's a philosophical uh, debate that we'll have about this and and it's good that we do. It's really good that we do. We need to be saying, okay, well, what is is the downstream repercussions or ramifications of this? I'd like to see what we do play out in policy arenas. I'd like to see the accounting that we're doing find a way to be framed to assist us with the State of the Environment Report to help give guidance to government about policy and that makes it equally dry as do the numbers so it doesn't assist with that question that you raise. And I don't think there's much we can do about how dreary this stuff can be unless we talk about the co-benefits. It's a bit like the climate change discussion. People don't want to talk about the climate science because it's numbers and it's equations and carbon sequestration is equally difficult because it's numbers and equations and how do we work all that out? But if we talk about co-benefits, then we start to have a discussion with people about the matters that interest them. Things that people actually care about. Absolutely. If I just use one example of how co-benefits play out, I remember some years ago I was at a sporting conference and I'm not a sports person and I was there and we were having a discussion about climate change and I was on a panel with people who were with the AFL and people who had an interest in a particular regional oval and they wanted to talk about drought proofing the oval by putting grass on it that meant that they didn't have to use additional amounts of water which meant they would reduce their costs so there's an accounting exercise playing out about sport and until you start to unpack it you really don't think about it as an accounting exercise but it is. My interest in being there was to talk about why or how sport means that we're healthier, we've reduced our obesity we're doing things like riding or walking to work if we can we're going to be in that in that way, reducing the health costs associated with uh, a government's idea about what the policy improvements are. But we'll also be dealing with the greenhouse emissions. Now, I didn't say to people, we're dealing with greenhouse emissions here. I talked about active travel to sports people, and they love to walk, they love to run. They're going to be engaged in the 10,000 Steps program that's coming up in September. They're going to be involved in all of that. But if I said to them, you're doing your bit for climate change, I'm sure they'd scratch their head perplexed and, and, go, and say, do- well, so who cares or what? Yeah. We, we- well, I think what you're illustrating there is the, the targeted message. So on one hand, you're talking to the groundskeeper, to the administrators, to the people who are managing the teams, etc., etc., and they care about all the input costs, how much the water is, the electricity, the fertiliser, the, and, and maybe the runoff, that kind of stuff. But the sporting fan, they want to see their team play. That's right. They want to see, you know, go the 
whoever's. Yeah, that's right. And the sports people, men and women, want to play on real turf. They don't want to play on artificial turf, as we saw with some of the recent, uh, I think it was the Olympics or the Commonwealth Games some time ago, where women netballers were being asked to play on on artificial turf and, and men weren't. There was some big discussion about that. And people want to play on a natural surface because of the perceived benefits of doing so. So nobody wants to be surrounded by artificiality and numbers, but they do see those numbers as important if they're thinking about how what, it benefits. What I care about. Now care you about. mentioned GDP earlier. Mm. Now GDP is is a grossly oversimplistic measure of the economy, and and there are so many defects in it. Is there? for better or for worse, an analogy in environmental accounting. So we've got the big clock, you know, the seconds to midnight uh, doomsday clock, which maybe is a little bit uh, colourful perhaps or a little bit out there, but it's something we can connect to. Is there an equivalent for environmental accounting? Look, not really. I think we've got to we've got to get back to concerning ourselves with how we get these messages through to people who make the decisions about what we spend our money on and how we think about growth. And we can spend a lot of time talking about growth in the terms that are infinitely polarised, and we've done that for years, and we haven't really, people will tell me, got very far in that conversation. Mm. I'm interested in finding ways to interpret material that gets people into the discussion rather than alienates them and polarises them and and leads to a, a failure to have the discussion. And one of the ways to do that will be through saying, look, GDP doesn't serve us as well as we thought it did. Environmental accounting has the, some of the issues that GDP does, and you've made the point that GDP has its own problems, and it does, and every account, economist and accountant will tell you that, that interpretation is made of GDP too. It's not, it's not like a profit and loss column that is... Uh, completely lacking interpretation. So I suppose the thing I would be saying is that we need to have the conversation, we need to be interpreting these things, but we need to do it about things we care about. Well, if I were to wrap up the um, description of environmental accounting, it's about making us conscious of our decisions. What are the impacts of our choices? And so when I throw the rubbish out of the car window or something, it it suddenly becomes invisible. Mm. And the thing about the environment is so much of it is invisible. Yeah. Look, a a very interesting chat recently with somebody who was having exactly this discussion about value with a person who was doing environmental accounts. And the environmental accounting person said, well, do you, you, you... the, the environment currently is valued. It's currently valued at zero. Do you want that to continue or should we think about how we say it's not zero in a profit and loss statement? It is infinitely valuable and we need to think about ways to make that clear. Well, a good, a good quote I saw recently is the economy is a subset of the environment. Absolutely. There is no economy without the environment. Absolutely. And we need to think about how we incentivise people to, and that's a horrible word, but I'll use it, incentivise people to do better. And if you just think about, put Canberra to one side for a minute, think about New York. If New York didn't pay farmers uh, environmental services or incentivise them to keep their cattle out of the, the 
the rivers that run out of the Catskill Mountains, New York wouldn't have clean water. And that's about saying that the water, the value of that water provisioning is it's valuable and it's valuable in money terms and farmers are paid to make sure that they provide that water for New York. It's not valueless, it's not zero, but we need to make sure we're paying for what we get. Mm. And as long as it's an externality, we take it for granted. Well, that's a good illustration, isn't it? Because the farmer then knows that what they do affects the water to New York. Now, if somebody in Canberra or anywhere in Australia uh, is interested in providing input to your process to the ACT Office of Sustainability? Yes. Try saying that. Uh, <laughs> it's longer uh, than that. Sustainability uh, and the environment. Yeah. And the environment after a beer or two, which is early in the morning I haven't done. Yeah. But uh, if somebody wants to give input, yep. how do they do Websites that? Websites there, Facebook page and Twitter. We've got all of those uh, social medias. They can do any of that and the website will take them to where they can phone or be in touch. How much are you relying on community input for this? We're doing a fair amount of community consultation. We've just recently, or I've just recently come from the Conservation Council's Bushfire Symposium, which was a fascinating example of people coming along and talking about a matter that's very important to Canberrans after the 2003 fires. I've just come back from the Eco City Conference in Victoria, where I launched that, the summit, the World Summit, where we had lots of discussions about community practitioners and about people who think that these matters are important from a deeply grounded perspective. And we're having lots of conversations with people here in the ACT and I've actually been quite pleased to be able to introduce people in the ACT to each other which was not something I thought I'd be doing. Well it's a good thing thank you very much for your time Professor Kate Orty. Thanks very much for inviting me. And I look forward to talking to you again in the near future.